martyrdom. In extreme cases, to die for one's beliefs is seen as the only truly worthwhile thing one can do with their life, and living a long, happy, and healthy life to a ripe old age and dying peacefully is seen as disappointing or shameful. This interpretation of martyrdom from the wiki site TV Tropes offers a very severe but probably also very common definition of martyrdom that exists in people's minds. Martyr describes one who knowingly suffers great emotional, mental, and physical distress, even death, for a cause which they're sympathetic to. This can be done merely for personal dedication, of course, or to also gain social currency with a particular group, sometimes referred to as pandering or virtue signaling. Now the practice of suffering great pain or even death for one's beliefs isn't anything new, and neither is the admiration which follows for those who remain loyal to the very ends of their respective struggles. And further suffering is oftentimes preventable if the martyr would simply renounce their beliefs in the presence of those who are demanding as much. It's been a part of human culture since I'm sure people could actually disagree with one another and it was clear that the price of disagreeing with somebody was going to be death. Uh, and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. <laughs> I say this despite the fact that the quality of life for billions of people around the world has made martyrdom less frequent in practice and more useful as merely theater, so as to gain sympathy with others and leverage that social equity in the cultural and political sphere. This topic jumped to mind upon hearing the news of the Central Park Karen incident, in which a white woman was being filmed by a black man because she was not respecting local ordinances which required her dog be leashed and the animal was supposedly damaging the landscaping. There is an African-American man. I am in Central Park. He is recording me and threatening myself and my dog. And my I'm sorry, I can't hear you either. I'm being threatened by a man into the ramble. Please send the cops immediately. The story made headlines that afternoon, but another more fatal story quickly overshadowed this one, the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis which occurred the very same day. Now, I cynically assumed that the dust would settle on both of these incidents and we would quickly be back to business as usual. But luckily, things didn't go back to business as usual. And even as I record this audio, we're coming past three weeks of daily protests following the murder of George Floyd. And not just riots and protests, violent and nonviolent alike, in Minneapolis or New York City, but across the United States and the world. And now you can turn on any media source or go to any figure and hear people that you would least likely expect pledging their support for the Black Lives Matter movement in their efforts in combating anti-black racism around the world, as well as police brutality, not just for black folks, but anyone who suffers under the state-sanctioned violence of our law enforcement. Because Black Lives Matter means all lives matter. And don't let anybody ever tell you otherwise. Now, the reason I'm returning to the Central Park Karen incident to talk about martyrdom, even though it is not the most severe case uh, that happened before or after afterwards, is that I feel that the responses and takes which a lot of people had, including activists and those who were just more vocal about social justice issues, it reinforced a criticism that I have about a lot of these collectivist and identity group movements, that being the fetishization of martyrdom. And I feel that the Central Park Karen incident is one which lends itself to discussing this issue at length. So let me break it down for y'all. So on Monday, May 25th, 2020, New York City, Central Park, Christian Cooper, a bird watcher, observed Amy Cooper, no relation, 
of roaming the grounds with her dog unleashed, in spite of the fact that she had a leash within her possession. This shows that she was aware of the local ordinances which demand that people keep their animals on a leash so as to prevent them damaging the landscaping, the gardening, attacking other animals or people. Seems pretty common sense, right? Well, Krishna decided that he was going to confront Amy on the issue, uh, but with the backdrop of so much violence against black people that comes from false victimhoods, false narratives, and just the general paranoia and anti-black racism, he thought it would be smart of him to record the incident. And boy, did he make the right call because Amy gave the worst possible reaction that she could, literally calling in a false police report claiming that he was threatening her and her dog while she was choking the animal trying to put the leash on it, uh, which, we, which she would complete by the end of the, of the video recording, uh, funny enough. And the news cycle around this incident was pretty swift. It had gone viral that afternoon. And in less than 24 hours, Amy Cooper had publicly apologized. She had been fired from her employer as an investment banker. And that dog, she had had it temporarily seized from her. But it has uh, unfortunately been returned to her to be choked yet again on another rendezvous through Central Park. Meanwhile, Christian made a statement that Amy, even though her intentions were pretty damn clear from her actions, that he felt bad that she lost her job, was getting death threats, and doesn't feel that she should have her life ruined. In no time at all, the hot takes poured in and the expected responses were in no short supply. He should have seen this coming. This is an insult to everyone, especially black folks who are upset at her. He shouldn't apologize. That just shows how much black people are taught to consider white people's feelings above their own. He's protecting her. And the first thought that came to my mind was, no, you dumbasses. He's protecting himself. So in discussing why I believe that there is a fetishization or an overemphasis of achieving martyrdom or admiring those who commit to, to the practice, I think it's important to get a little more abstract so that we can really identify where the schism lies for me. And just to reinforce the point is that the schism that I'm referring to is the difference between infatuation and commitment, between pretense and execution, or really, in, in other words, it's just thinking about the short game versus the long game. You need both. But when I say fetishization of martyrdom, really what I'm saying is that I feel that too many people are concerned with the short game and what allows us to feel good in that moment, getting caught up in, oh, somebody, you know, I love the fact that somebody was out there screaming, fuck the police, or somebody was out there flipping off, you know, saying an authority figure or, or how the latest, you know, op got you know destroyed in somebody's you know twitter thread or was it you know some expose some good journalism you know saying came out that you know oh was gonna you know wreck their career and shit and then what happens most of the time they just come back harder and even better than before you know what i'm saying because people who didn't know them before that notoriety that they got from being quote unquote called out all of a sudden sometimes not all the time sometimes deplatforming works but oftentimes it's not as effective as people want it to be because you're just giving them free marketing. And so I feel that a lot of folks whom are genuinely concerned about social issues, they're really activists, you know, they're really putting their money where their mouth is. And unfortunately, I feel that, you know, as politics has become more pop culture, ultimately, I think in the long run, that's a good thing. But one of the trade-offs of that is going to be a lot of the superficial trading in symbolism, cults of personality, and, you know, theater. 
and prioritizing things that look good, make you feel good, but don't offer any real solutions or progress or development in helping you to affect, you know, the changes in the world which you want to see. So with all that in mind, let's consider this. When a person is thought to act with no apparent self-gain or with ambitions too high for their peers, uh, this is referred to as altruism. I think people use the term in a very limited fashion, however, as with uh, most ideas, as the desire to improve anyone's life, anyone's quality of life, is to recognize forces which can be guided, directed, manipulated actively towards different ends than the ones present. This isn't hypocrisy. This is just the result of a diehard belief oftentimes in utopian systems, which often makes those who support such ideas come off as naive and inexperienced at best or at worst belonging to a cult. The point is, somebody's got to take charge and lead the way forward, helping make sense of collective actions and values and clarifying what opportunities for a better existence lie ahead. That sounds pretty that sounds pretty straightforward, right? Uh, no matter how much onlookers may disparage these folks as being too aspirational, too involved, too engaged, every group will produce figures which play this role for the collective. If an individual is not simply taking upon themselves to represent these values, it's just how people operate at the end of the day. But when a person is acting in their own best interest, not only for personal gain, but to sustain their life force in and of itself, what do we call that? self-preservation and when i was browsing my peers and fellow citizens input on different issues and especially concerning this central park karen incident i had to often remind myself that common sense is contextual and what's common to me is uncharted territory for others or vice versa though as a result of marinating on all this i'm convinced that most people retain one instinct for self-preservation which justifies how they make it through their day-to-day what guides their moral compass and their objections, and another which ignores the same level of consideration for others. The same consideration that others are equally concerned with their own livelihood are as equally complex, have as many different motivations and inhibitions that are guiding them. So, for many, to observe someone take a big risk is gratifying because it's the chance to spectate, fantasize, and offer color commentary as to what the best move looks like from the outside. The benefit, of course, is that you only have to grapple with one half of the game and it's not even the most critical half. Most people want others to behave altruistically. They want strangers to behave altruistically. They want to witness that. They want to believe that they live in a world that is bound by others acting selflessly. They offer themselves as martyrs for a common cause, which is of great value to the observer, even though that person, they cannot or will not participate in shaping the situation themselves. Meanwhile, they have the privilege of being able to just walk away at the first prospect of failure or slight discomfort or not even participate at all simply spectate (laughs) this schism helped create the conditions for this fetishization of martyrdom that is ultimately destructive to all social movements in theory and practice why who wants to build a house they don't get the chance to live in or witness it change hands to those with little or no shared values and understanding of what it took to establish in the first place. Now, jumping back to Central Park Karen. So after Christian made those remarks about the fallout of Amy Cooper's behavior and saying that she didn't deserve to have her life ruined and he felt bad about it, blah, blah, blah. 
What many folks, especially black folks, unsurprisingly, uh, were saying he was naive to record the encounter and then upload it to social media, expecting it go viral, only to get cold feet once it actually did. Others declared it was another example of a black man being so psychologically ruined, what's often referred to in the, in the community as being, quote, buck broken, that he instinctively has to go cape for a privileged white woman, even if they were trying to get him assaulted or killed by the police due to false accusations. Some said that he was just too polite and nice and cowardly to not feel remorse for what happened to her. Nah, I don't feel that any of these answers are even half right, not even a dime piece. So let's dig a little deeper, shall we? Christian stated that he recorded the incident because he was aware of the dynamic of a black man confronting a white woman, even in liberal New York City's Central Park. And he had fresh in his mind the many black people killed by different hostile forces while just trying to live a decent life, including Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery. It must be said that everything else being equal, uh, if Amy had still rejected his request to leash her dog but did so in a calm, flippant manner, then Christian would probably just come off as more of a busybody who happened to be right on the issue but overly concerned with the matter at hand. Maybe. Then they would just go home and neither would be known to the rest of the world for any good reason, right? However, it was Amy's weaponization of whiteness, of femininity, of animal sympathy in a way that had a very clear intention was to get Christian at the very least uh, arrested under false pretenses and possibly assaulted or even killed. This was in a masking of the normally subtle art of means-tested racism, which uses indirect associations and qualifiers instead of direct racism. It's the difference between saying, oh, he's African-American, he's threatening me and my dog, I need police immediately, and he's black, what is he doing here? You already know they're a problem. Thankfully, Amy's response was so hyperbolic and evidently false that her narrative got no traction. Instead, it landed her some minor setbacks, let's be honest, but some setbacks nonetheless. And she had to at least acknowledge how much of a privileged brat she is to the whole world, something which we normally don't get to see. And really, whether she meant it or not isn't much concern to me. I could care less what's really in her heart if she even has one for other human beings. I just want to hear her have to own up to what she is, what we all know she is. And she did. <laughs> so I'm satisfied. Her intent was clear. Once again, she was trying to leverage her identity and privilege to reinforce a strict but informal social hierarchy. That no black man should ever feel brave enough to confront a white woman of certain uh, graces or esteem. And whoever does cross those boundaries needs to be reminded of their place in the social pecking order. And let's face it, without video evidence, what defense would Christian or any of us who empathize with him have against the legal or cultural machine that legitimizes the Amy Coopers of the world? Really? This was something brought up about moderate white liberals that both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King found mutual understanding on, concluding that white liberals are able to cloak their true desires behind a pretense of solidarity and building a consensus around justice as a remedy for social ills before shifting to law and order after placing in the qualifying rounds of our electoral and cultural politics. Amy Cooper was trying to reinforce a very specific kind of law and order that is common amongst our liberal Democrat leaders and influencers. Means-tested racism. Racism bound by certain limitations and qualifiers. Because, you know, white liberals might be racist, but at least they're not, like, racist that, that 
wouldn't vote for Obama for a third term, you know? You may recognize this phenomenon when you hear a mainstream media source talking about diversity of opinion, only to have a glut of non-white faces repeating the same liberal centrist ideology as the white folks with the reins of power in those spaces. This is referred to as representation, uh, but it's really a euphemism that activists and social critics rightfully point out actually means tokenism. You stray away from the beaten path and, well, we hear you, we see you, we share your concerns. Just try not to rock the boat too much, okay? We really like having you around. For better or worse, I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt and take them at their word, especially if it lines up with their previously stated beliefs and actions and taking into consideration the context of whatever situation we're in. So in this case, I accept that Christian was acting in good faith and only wanted to protect himself as a black man in the U.S. against the wrath of a privileged white woman, while also trying to uphold the practice of common courtesy for public spaces like the Central Park grounds. And I assume, while he did want to garner some attention to the incident, he had no idea nor desire for it to become viral globally, especially amidst the backdrop of so many more severe incidents of anti-black racism and violence around the world. I think it's counterproductive and insulting to claim that Christian is somehow not aware of all these other variables and not still acting in his best interest. If this and other incidents prove that white supremacy is hiding in plain sight, even in the liberal melting pot of New York City, why the hell wouldn't he try to calm the outrage leveled against him by his potential oppressors? And now he has to go about his regular life being globally famous for disrupting white liberal supremacy and those who reinforce it. He's just a bird watcher, y'all. Is there a GoFundMe set up for this man so he can afford security during the inevitable backlash from those who have easier access to him? Or at least so that he can maintain his career and standard of living in New York City, period, with all this heightened scrutiny? This shit isn't going away in one cycle of canceling or protest or outing. I surely hope y'all don't assume that. Because this is the very reason we're still dealing with these issues at the frequency and severity they occur. A lot of parties assume that displays of social or legal punishment and media cycles of canceling would make all of this stuff just right away in the corner instead of festering and plotting revenge on all those within its reach later down the road. I'm sure many of you still remember the Ferguson riots of 2014, which occurred over the murder of Mike Brown, a black man, by a white police officer. And you may also recognize certain figures which remain prominent in the aftermath of those protests, including D. Ray Mackison, who is known for making uh, the rounds on the media and entertainment circuit, and congressional candidate Cori Bush. What you may be less aware of is the fact that no less than six activists who were known for participating in the Ferguson protests have been found dead under strange circumstances. I would go ahead and say murder, but that might put me into conspiracy theory territory. But how else would you explain somebody shooting themselves in the back and then being found alone in the backseat of a burning car in a sketchy part of town that they aren't normally known to be in? And unfortunately, this is very common. Those who participate in these various resistance movements throughout history are known to be murdered or disappeared or at the very least become targets of campaigns to discredit them as individuals or their movements as a whole. And this doesn't even include attempts at censorship. So what, you think Christian Cooper had Brianna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery on his mind but not Ferguson and Mike Brown or even Eric Garner and Ramsey Orta? the man who filmed Garner's murder and was released from prison only on July 9, 2020. What about the abuse and untimely death of Sandra Bland that was ruled suicide by police despite lies and inconsistencies in the police report and the video footage that was initially released to the public? 
Maybe Christian also pondered the economic and psychological desperation of Rosa Parks, amongst other activists who had survived from various anonymous donations to keep her and her husband afloat. Or hell, maybe he even had the assassination of Fred Hampton on his mind whilst his pregnant wife had a gun aimed at her belly, told to stay quiet while her partner was murdered in front of her by Chicago police. Yeah, y'all can miss me with all the shit you were saying about Christian and thinking you know a person's best moves and what it is they are supposed to represent for those outside of their circle. <laughs> y'all seem to not even want to grapple with the abundant history which is so readily available for all of us to consume. You're overly concerned with the theater, the performance of saying, yeah, fuck the system, and completely overlook the consequences of actually challenging the powers that be. Or if you are able to grapple with those things, you're not actually saying them out loud. Either way, whether it's by malice or by ignorance, the impact of this behavior is the same. It endangers all of us. So, to summarize... For the last several years now, dozens of countries have had coups, protests, rebellions, and counterinsurgencies of all kinds spring up. The U.S. is in no different position, even though it seems that we've taken the longest to actually coming around to dealing with these various issues. In the end, we still end up battling with deeply entrenched customs, none of which will be abandoned without great pushback or retaliation. And you would expect civilians in other countries to take whatever precautions they could, right? in order to prolong their life and contributions to their respective movements? So why not yourself and those close to you? Why is it when it comes to our leaders and our fighters, whether reformist politicians or revolutionary activists, there's an expectation that if you're not willing to die or at least cause a great stir over every tragedy of the day, that you've insulted your followers and abandoned your cause? Last I checked, Christian wasn't an activist that went out looking for such incidents to film and popularize online. And even if that were the case, why should he accept mutilation or death or harassment as a natural consequence without protecting himself to some degree? Whether that's actually being armed, having security guards, wearing disguises, etc. Or, in this case, showing that he feels regret for causing any inconvenience on this privileged white woman's life, even if he doesn't really mean it. Whether he does or not isn't important. It's giving the benefit of the doubt that he is not acting cruelly and gives the impression to white folks that he is in no rush to repeat the same actions and holds no grudges against white people in general. And so what if they don't believe it for themselves? Why should he just allow them to spin the narrative without having to acknowledge his side of the story? We're miles behind in a game of inches, folks, if you care about any type of social justice. This is guerrilla warfare. You advance, you retreat, you rinse, wash, repeat. We have to consider multiple angles and multiple tactics and strategies at the same time and not be too proud to accept when we've taken an L or need to re-strategize or just lie low for a while so that he can die down before we go about completing our next goal. Some people never forget when they've been wronged and it shapes their entire identity. Their entire life's mission becomes centered around revenge for any perceived grievance and they will rationalize any sort of behavior towards their perceived enemies whether it's just mocking and appropriating a cherished symbol of the opposition or destroying one of their adversaries altogether. Don't forget the country in which we live. It was built on genocide and slavery, okay? And much of it is still not stopped. It's only slowed down or become secret. It's not just brutal cops, crooked politicians, and two-faced news commentators or vapid celebrities we have to worry about. It's also bankers, corporate managers, talent agencies, chefs, land developers, co-ops, doctors, truck drivers, all of whom have identities and desires which they hide to avoid scrutiny, but can be set off given the right circumstances. 
It's not going to come with an announcement. There's not going to be a prologue, no foreshadowing, or a pop-up notification to warn you. We have to be able to acknowledge and grapple with the darkness of the tunnel, not just the light we imagine at the end of it. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe, like, and share, and be sure to engage with me in any way possible. And I look forward to hearing from y'all in the future. And let me know what y'all think of the video. Bye. All right, so I got a little bonus story here on Amy Cooper, AKA Central Park Karen. Because while I was looking into that incident, I stumbled upon another story uh, that was reported by DailyMail.com, a UK-based publication, uh, that reported on a, another incident that happened years earlier in Amy's life, but is also pretty telling about who she is and makes the Central Park incident seem less surprising. So on May 29th, 2020, it was reported in the UK-based publication DailyMail.com that a former co-worker and friend of Amy's, whom I'll refer to as Mr. P, he said that he wasn't surprised by the viral video, telling the Daily Mail he's seen that type of false hysteria before. He went on to describe how his first contact was with Amy in 2003, where they both worked at Lehman Brothers Investment Bank, and stated that the pair were on good terms until around 2012. The reason for distancing himself, Mr. P describes, is that Amy expressed romantic feelings for him that weren't reciprocated. Now I just want to add real quick. I know it can be difficult to handle rejections gracefully as a man or a woman. Especially after getting to know a person for almost 10 years, it's understandable why Mr. P would feel the pair can no longer fraternize with one another because it's possible this could send the wrong signal to Amy and it shouldn't be expected in my opinion that she does quote unquote turn off her affection towards her male colleague. That's simply not being human. And it's going to take some time before she can interact on a strictly platonic level with him, uh, though it's preferable that she seek that mutual romantic affection outside the workplace in general. This is just my opinion, and I have no idea of what words were exchanged between Amy and Mr. P concerning this matter, if there were any exchange at all. But once again, Amy's reaction was so disproportionate to the situation, it's difficult to grant her even that much consideration. So keep how this story unfolds. Mr. P claims that after the rejection, and over the next several months, Amy started leaving threatening text emails threatening to hurt Mr. P, his family, and herself long as he continued to ignore her. Yikes! This resulted, unsurprisingly, in Mr. P filing a harassment suit in February 2013. However, the effort was made in vain because June 2014, he alleges that Amy tried to enter his home without his consent or invitation. He claims that she lied to the doorman of his residence, pretending to be Mr. P's sister, and tried to open his front door, which was presumably unlocked, but was thwarted when he rushed to slam it shut and called the police. Mr. P says that Amy fled the scene before the cops arrived and continued to send multiple text messages after the encounter. While a number of text messages were quote, observed, but no arrests were made or charges filed, with Mr. P's efforts once again ignored by authorities. It goes on. Amy supposedly sent a message to Mr. P stating that quote, she wasn't going to stop until she put him in the gutter, quote, and filed a lawsuit alleging that Mr. P and she were romantically involved from 2008 to 2012 while he was still married to his first wife. She attempted to sue him for $65,000, American, claiming theft and that it was in fact Mr. P who was threatening her life. He denied the charges and the case was dismissed when neither party showed up to court meetings in January and March of 2018, according to DailyMail.com. Mr. P asserts that the accusations of infidelity damaged his family, career, and reputation, saying that certain employers refused to employ me due to allegations by Amy. 
Furthermore, upon hearing about the Central Park situation involving his old friend Amy, Mr. P claims he was horrified yet not surprised by the footage, saying he'd known of that type of false hysteria before. In a longer statement, he says, I'm so sorry for Mr. Cooper. You know I empathize a great deal and I'm grateful that he had the foresight to record her. She's just a predator. What she did was predatory. He goes on to claim that Amy was race baiting and projecting false victimhood when there are women and African Americans out there, real victims that are threatened every day and she has endangered both by crying wolf.